0: Welcome to the latest edition of the NPM Podcast. I'm John Burke, Managing Editor of NPM. And joining me today is a man who needs no introduction, Alan Marks, partner in Millbank's Global Project Energy and Infrastructure Finance Group. Thanks for joining the program today, Alan.
1: Thanks, John. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, so he, uh, Alan, has dropped by today to talk about the project finance landscape of 2022. Uh, he, you can also see him next. Uh, at our US Development and Finance Forum in three weeks time at the JW Mary Hotel in Houston on April 5th. Uh, But uh, let's get to project finance first. So we're only about two and a half months into 2022. Alan, I'd like to just get your thoughts at a higher level about where you see project finance going uh, for the rest of the year and how do you place it in terms of relative to 2020 and 2021? Uh, there seems to be a lot of issues which make it seem like 2022 might still be prolific, but just maybe a little bit slower relative to those other years. But I'll let you take it from here.
1: Yeah, we can look at headwinds in a minute. But right now, I'd say we have a lot of tailwinds. Uh, 2022 is already you know, very, very busy, uh, even you know year on year. Uh, solar, uh, solar plus storage, standalone energy storage, uh, wind both onshore and offshore, uh, certainly in the US market. I mean, there's just a lot of activity. Uh, We're also seeing a a sustained interest in uh, secondary transactions, whether that's refinancings, uh, you know, USPPs or or, uh, long-term debt that takes out construction debt or mini-perms. And of course, tax equity remains, you know, very robust. Uh, And M&A, because a lot of assets are being bundled and and, and sold off as portfolios or, uh, you know, even whole companies are being acquired. So I, I, I expect this year will be, you know, very, very robust. Uh, you, you asked about 2020 and 2021, you know, 2020, we had COVID hit and there was a period in the second quarter where markets, uh, not just renewables and not just financial markets, but markets generally, uh, for commodities and other things were very dislocated. And we had rapid drop in demand and uh, a lot of uncertainty. And whenever there's uncertainty, people are, I think have a difficult time, uh, with investment, with valuations, and with confidence. Uh, and many of these projects depend on just that, long-term contracted revenues uh, and confidence in deep and liquid markets. So that ended up being much more short-lived, I think, than people expected. And We, we saw a pretty robust activity toward the end of 2020, but in 2021, you really saw a lot of activity squeezed into one year that would have otherwise happened over a two-year period. And the continuation last year of historically low interest rates, I think, uh, really fueled the fire, as did the Federal Reserve just dumping massive amounts of liquidity into the banking system. And all of that money needed a place to go. So combined with federal stimulus uh, and a surprising rebound in demand, I think we saw uh, you know, just a massive amount of investment and financing activity last year. Headwinds, I think the biggest one on my mind this year is supply chains. And supply chain disruptions. There are many more projects that could be funded and built. Uh, it's not a shortage of liquidity. It's not even a shortage of, of contracts or locations. Uh, many more could be built if you had a supply of you know, modules and panels and inverters and cables. Uh, uh, labor. Uh, if you look at even at an oil and gas, go out through outside the renewables market. You know we. People say we should drill more in order to have more oil and gas because of the global energy situation. Um, people who prefer cleaner, greener energy like solar and wind might disagree with that. But the fact is, even if you tried to ramp up oil and gas production domestically, it's going to take you six months before you could move the needle on, on price. And that assumes you have skilled labor uh, uh, upstream. It assumes you have rigs that are available uh, when we don't have that. So I think supply chains just across the economy, but especially in energy and especially in renewables uh, remain kind of the biggest headwind. The only other headwind I'd mention this year would be uh, rising interest rates. And that, I think the issue will not be how high they go, but how quickly they get there. So if you see, you know, 25, 50 basis point rises uh, over the course of the next, say you know, six, seven months, I think the market's already priced that in. If you were to see stronger uh, uh, or higher uh, rises in interest rates or, or other geopolitical shocks, shocks that, that, affected liquidity, then I think that would be a bigger headwind, but right now supply chains are, are top of mind.
0: Great. So, um, shifting over the, to PPAs, um, you know, again, we kind of see it in our, uh, daily coverage of, um, of PPAs of all shapes and sizes at this point, um, you know, it's signifying a, um, a decrease in the amount of utilities, big utility long-term PPAs that are out there and kind of a shift more to corporate PPAs to to virtual BPPAs. We've seen plenty of that, but it, you know, sort of signifies a shift in, um, you know, the way these contracts are structured and um, you know, there was always this um, ecosystem of a mini-perm construction finance market tied to a longer-term finance, whatever uh, that turned out to be, whether a private placement more prolifically or, or a term loan, um, you know, th- that was matched with the length of the PPA. And, um, you know, curious to see your thoughts about with these shorter-term PPAs, how that might change uh, the financing ecosystem um, as far as matching um, these longer-term financings with um, the length of the PPA?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so I, I say first, we, we have to look back at why the market got spoiled or used to relying on long-term PPAs, power purchase agreements, uh, especially with utility offtakers. So I mean, I remember doing work 30 years ago. We had standard offer four contracts in California. We had most of the market being fueled by long-term PPAs. Those were especially gas-fired power plants where... Uh, you looked to the utility offtaker for duration, hence the long-term. You looked to them for certainty of payment. So we had availability and capacity concepts. So even if they weren't dispatched and you didn't receive an energy payment, you still had a capacity charge over a period of years that you could use as a basis for long-term debt. And utilities are a great proxy for creditworthiness because they aggregate rate payers in a way that because of a, a regulator uh, gives their wholesale suppliers strong assurance that, you know, they will in fact pay for the power or the capacity that, that they're acquiring. Um, you know, why is that? Yes, because regulators make sure the utilities don't borrow too much money and utilities are allowed to recover their costs by um, raising the rates in ways that, are, that the regulators find reasonable. Now, when you have a disruption to that picture, what do you lose? Uh, you may lose the credit quality, but I would say a lot of the virtual PPAs you mentioned are with financial institutions that are creditworthy. Uh, you may find that, uh, you, you know, some of the corporate off-takers, you know, big box retails, hotel chains, uh, maybe data centers. That's a slightly different sub-market. Um, but they may have credit quality that is absolutely fantastic. Uh, and in fact, as we've seen consolidation of a number of large companies, Amazon, Walmart, and so forth, that are also large purchasers of power and renewable power in particular, I would say their PPAs are very strong credits. You don't need a regulator to have strong credit, uh. The other thing you'd like, of course, is predictability in your cash flows. And that's a question of volume and price. Uh, Historically, sometimes you had issues, in fact, with utility offtakers around the volume piece because you had dispatch dispatch risk. And a lot of the corporate offtakers maybe have more predictable needs for some of this power. And depending on the transmission situation, the renewables are probably the cheapest or lowest marginal source of that power so you really don't face the same risk and in some ways you're in a better position. We saw in uh, the PG&E bankruptcy in California, uh, I worked on the first one, our firm worked on both. Uh, For the creditors, we looked at the Texas situation from the winter storms last February. Uh, It is not always the case that utilities are uh, insulate you from either price risk or volume risk or ability to perform uh, in credit quality. Uh, So the last part of it then is duration. And I do think that bringing in the term of PPAs makes it harder to do long-term financing because it means you have a merchant tail that people then have to uh, analyze. And in markets that are leak, uh, liquid and deep, where you have a few transmission constraints, you're not dealing with you know, basis risk on the pricing, perhaps you would have high confidence that you'd be dispatched. And again, some inside defense uh, uh, energy or energy plus storage projects, for example, at data centers, you know refineries you you can be pretty assured that you've got a a long-term volume for demand and then the question is what's the price so that that will affect the 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 tenor of debt that's available but doesn't i don't think it's one size fits all i think it's very project specific and just requires you know more analysis of the credit metrics
0: yeah that that's interesting and yeah to your point we do see a lot of large corporates assume those shorter term corporate ppas and uh, data centers, which can be a whole other podcast in its own right. Um, you know, your, your lease is with Facebook or sorry, meta and, and alphabet via Google. So there's plenty of creditworthy tenants in there. Um, yeah. or, or, plenty crypto
1: of, min- or crypto miners and that's a whole other conversation.
0: <laughs> that's yes, that would be another program. C- correct. Um, so let's talk about the, um, the, get back to the tailwinds. Um, you know, the, the 2021, uh, you saw a very heated m M&A market as uh, the likes of Orgis, Cypress Creek, and Savion, big utility-scale developers uh, trading into the hands of larger institutional investors. And in the case of Savion, of course, Shell, so a large corporate. Uh, the pace of, you know, DevCos that are out in the market is certainly, I think, probably accelerated as a result of some of the valuations that, that were bandied about in those earlier deals. Um, so taking a step back, we know that again, what we're dealing with today and getting projects, uh, to completion is a challenge right now because of the supply chain issues. Um, and because of the, these are optimally optimistically looking at maybe is 2024, you know, being when these projects start to get executed a little bit better. Um, but, you know, I kind of wanted to just get your view because there was always that sentiment, again, Devcos get institutional capital, they scale into the IPP model. Um, They now develop and own rather than develop and sell, or or sorry, buy and hold being the model. Um, You know, in your view, given that everything they're facing today in terms of getting projects to uh, COD, um, where do you think investors start to see returns? Uh, And is is it gonna be just a longer term prognosis, or is it still gonna be sort of within you know, a, a, a defined period? I guess, what, what, what are your views on some of these issues?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot there, uh, John. I, I, I think that if you look at valuations first, uh, if you're in a stable and low interest rate environment, then present values of cash flows are worth more, and timing is less important. So if I deploy capital today versus next year, it may not make all that much difference. As interest rates rise and as there's more demand for fewer assets, say say for example, supply chains choke off the or slow down the pace of development. At the same time as you have still ample liquidity looking for places to invest, you know that's going to have a, have an impact on valuations. And it's a good time to be a seller uh, when that happens. And I've you know worked on the on the sell side for some uh, you know solar CNI portfolios and developers and things in the last year, uh, I would say being a seller is a good thing, but then you still have to redeploy the capital. Imagine you're a private equity fund or an infrastructure shop. You sold this stuff and now what do you do? You still need another place to deploy it. Uh, And I I suspect that we're going to see wider ranges in valuations. So the bid ask uh, and the range, if you have an auction, the range of bids may be quite different. We've already seen some, uh, I won't give you names, but some where you know, what people are willing to pay for, for, for assets is much wider than I would have expected. Why is that? It's not just cost of capital. In fact, it's probably not, not primarily cost of capital. It's just very different views on uh, NPV valuations and risks associated, especially I think an underappreciation for downside risks on a lot of these assets. So we'll have to see how it shakes out. I, I just, I think it's very hard to give a a a coherent answer to that question in in isolation of looking at a particular opportunity. The last thing I would say, though, is there are a number of investors that were looking at uh, energy, uh, let's look at energy storage, for example, as if it's an emerging technology and therefore should be priced the way IT assets are priced. Uh, That's ridiculous. I mean, you and I have been doing this for a number of years. Energy is a commodity business. It's a regulated business. It ultimately, you can't overcharge your ratepayers. You can't really make it up on scale very well, but you do, you know, but you have, you know, the trade-off for that is the ability to, because of stable cash flows, add return on equity through leverage. And in order to do that and maximize debt capacity, you've got to drive down risk. You've got to, 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 to increase predictability of the cash flows. That is the exact opposite of what a lot of growth investors or high multiple, you know, cash on cash, high target investors have been looking for. And I think a lot of them will you will figure out pretty quickly and get their hands burnt that energy is maybe not the right sector for that type of optimistic or overly optimistic investing on the equity side.
0: Yeah, I think it's sometimes it's harder to separate with energy storage too between the the tech and the developers to themselves because you see a lot of energy storage names bandied about and then you sort of like break it down and like, oh, they're contracted with the person building the system. Um, So you really got to read the fine print as to what, what you're really investing in i think
1: now what i would say is i i uh, for storage is i am very optimistic i think you're going to see a, yeah. a, a massive amount of investment in storage and a lot of that is not just a technology of how the power is being stored you know is it a battery of a certain type or a different type is it a you know a hydroelectric reservoir or pump storage is it i mean at some level hydrogen is actually more of a storage technology than it is a fuel technology Uh I suspect a lot of it will come around optimization. So a lot of the things to make uh, batteries and energy storage interesting are the specific applications. So for instance, uh, batteries for mobility, for EVs, there are things you want to do to make it light. Uh, You certainly want to make sure it doesn't catch on fire as well, that are different than you might do if you're trying to use uh, battery storage to make a smarter grid where the software interface so that that can react instantly to changes in load um, and provide ancillary services like, you know, voltage support and the rest of it, you know, though those are uh, different technological challenges. And I think there's a lot of room for innovation and you're going to see a lot of investment.
0: Yeah, and I think certainly on our side, we um, cover these RFPs now and like, I'd say the the lion's share that we're seeing now currently, even today, this morning with um, Indiana, Michigan, uh, I&M, which is an AP uh, company. Uh, again, they're very happy to separate that they're gonna take solar and wind, but they're also happy to take so, uh, standalone storage as well. It's very much a part of uh, some of these broader remits. And then we're seeing the emergency um, resources, um, procurements going on in California um, and on to Texas that these are becoming these are high demands and and it's going to continue i suspect
1: yeah also um, you mentioned california i'll also say you know the, the way this plays into resilience and resilience planning is is pretty yeah. important so you, you know you you if, if you're not going to just build up great big legacy baseload plus peaker kind of utility grid systems with really high reserve margins so what do you do instead to be resilient one is diversification of, of resources so you have hydro, and you have solar, and you have wind, and you have perhaps gas, you have perhaps nuclear, you have other things that are all feeding in. So the theory is you're relatively insulated if one of them is having, you know, headwinds, especially if it's, uh, you know, on the fuel side. Um, another is microgrids. And say, look, we're not going to rely on this big, fragile system. What if we have, you know, backups, whether the microgrids are your primary generation uh, or, or, or a backup system? At some point, economically, that might be inefficient from a system-wide standpoint, but, but if it's deployed, you need storage to go with it. And that means long duration storage uh, in, in many cases. Uh, that's going to be you know a bit more challenging. I think when people say, gee, wind has gotten you know very inexpensive, uh, but it can't compete with the drops we're seeing in solar. I think you have to compare solar plus storage, not just solar on a standalone basis if you're a regulator, and then see what that is compared to wind or, or other things. And also the cost of not making changes and not adapting, given the, you know, the the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions
0: interesting all right well let's get into some a couple pieces of legislation um the uh taking the first step of course the federal infrastructure bill um you know uh the biden administration did put a lot of green elements into build back better eventually in the final draft but there were some provisions in there for growing um such as um allocations for things like transmission and electric vehicles. Um, um, why don't you just sort of uh talk about EV and um uh, you know how the bill might help it and also how it might impact uh places like energy storage um and, and solar. Um, I'll let you take it from here.
1: Sure. So the, the build back better bill has not passed yet, but last year's infrastructure bill that did uh still had things in it for for clean energy that were useful. Uh, transmission siting and long-distance transmission lines. Uh, if a state regulator fails to act, the federal government now has more powers through FERC to cite um, uh, uh, interstate transmission—that's uh, you know high-voltage, high long-distance transmission lines. That's a positive. Uh, I think it—you know—it'll help to bring a lot of renewable resources to the market when they're located remote from load centers. Uh, we saw a big push for hydrogen and hydrogen hubs, and we've seen the first. Uh, billions of dollars of, of uh, that initiative announced now from the administration. They're, they're really rolling this stuff out pretty quickly. I'm, I, I'm impressed. Um, there's also a lot of interagency cooperation. So in last year's infrastructure bill, uh, there were uh, uh, bi- there's bipartisan agreement around the idea of one federal decision and a combined federal dashboard, and interagency cooperation uh, for projects subject to NEPA. Uh, the idea that some permits could get expedited in as quickly as a year when they used to take many, many years or not be or they bounce around between agencies now they have to do those in parallel. Uh, those were initiatives that were uh, prompted by the Obama administration and supported by the Trump administration and now are rolling on the Biden administration. So politics does not always get in the way of you know things like permitting reform. Uh there, I think interesting, you look at EVs, the administration just announced uh, the Biden Harris administration just announced, Uh, $5 billion, kind of the initial uh, piece of their rollout for a nationwide EV charging network on interstate highways. Uh, That was part of the funding included by Congress in last year's, last November's infrastructure law. And states are allocated it the same way they are, you know, their ordinary uh, federal aid transportation monies. And if a state does not use its money or doesn't apply or doesn't get its plan approved by federal highways, then... The EV monies could be used in that state instead by localities or municipalities to make applications that are approved by federal highways. And failing that, the money could be reallocated to other states. So some states could use that. You could imagine Texas, California, Florida, you know, a lot of people, a lot of impetus for EVs, big markets potentially for EVs, and power grids um, that, you know, can support with their growth the increasing demand for power from electrification of, of transportation and of vehicles but you compare that to a state like Wyoming, Wyoming is a state that produces the most coal. People drive the most uh, about 18,000 miles a year on average in Wyoming, much higher than, you know, you know, where you might be say in New York or New Jersey. Uh, and that's also a state where the electric system is dominated by coal. So yeah, you've got a lot of wind, a lot of wind It's growing. They've, you know, doubled their their installed wind capacity but a lot of the power produced in wyoming is actually exported out of wyoming so if you take a car in wyoming and you switch it from running on gasoline and let's assume it's a relatively fuel efficient low emissions you know newer car that's running on gasoline and instead you switch it to ev on one of these new stations and you plug it in if the power you're pulling from the grid is produced by a coal-fired power plant you have not helped the world in terms of greenhouse gas emissions you've actually probably gone backwards. Uh, So I think the lesson from that is not that you shouldn't do EVs in Wyoming highways. What what it means is you can't look at transportation in a vacuum. You can't look at it apart from the energy grid. So you've got to move to renewables on your electric system at the same time as you're having EV penetration. Uh, And when you look at power demands coming in from, from, from digital infrastructure, from 5G, uh, telephony i mean all of that's going to really increase the growth rate for electricity and and so it becomes all that more important that build back betters provisions for uh, you know clean fuels for uh for tax credits for wind and solar and all the other incentives that are contemplated that they be done in a way that's responsible that goes in parallel so that you you, you do in fact have uh, a, a better grid the last thing i would say is in both these bills there are the, the new law and the proposed bill um, there are initiatives that are coming out of the administration and that are supported by both parties in Congress toward domestic manufacturing. And we looked at supply chains before, right? So this is tied into that, the idea of you know making us in- insulated from globalization, which I think is not really going to happen. But uh, you know, supporting domestic manufacture, supporting domestic jobs, those are laudable goals. I, can- I don't think anybody's opposed to them. But they do have unintended consequences potentially with respect to projects uh, you know bumping up against those same constraints that we talked about at the top. labor. Do we have enough people to do it? Uh, and cost. And you know if you have to you know pay higher wages, you should. But that does not mean that your project, you know you do that for free. Someone's gonna have to pay for that. And I think that you know that needs to be factored in if you're trying to accelerate uh, infrastructure programs, whether it's in energy or other sectors.
0: Um, can I just tie it back to Evie, too? I'd be curious your views on this in terms of the project finance market, um, because we haven't really, we've been given lots of concepts out there about how this is supposed to work. Um, I think the most tangible thing in my view has been that the bus um, electrification program tied to microgrids, tied to pluggers at these various depots, uh, and a huge you know, municipal component to all that, and a huge corporate element to all that. Um, But then, you know, everything else, you know, in terms of residential uh, markets and uh, corporate markets, you know, there's been a lot of widespread things. I'm just kind of wondering, in your view, if there's going to be larger uh, infrastructure like projects that come to market that need project finance and what shape it might take. And is this something that's going to happen or is it never going to really approach the level of a solar Farm or a wind farm getting financing on that same level, or you know, offshore wind, which will be tomorrow's challenge, I guess. But your views? Yeah.
1: yeah, So I, I think if you're doing a you know a, a standalone transit-related project, uh, if it doesn't have the scale to justify the transaction costs for project financing, uh, or if there's a lot of time, I've done a lot of P3s you know, on the transport uh, yes, side as well. And when you sit there and you, you're talking to government agencies, you know, they don't have the benefit of. Uh, knowledge of the commercial market or maybe even a sensitivity to commercial risk allocation. They do want to deliver quality projects and reduce long-term life cycle costs, uh, but you got to reinvent the wheel every single time. That's, that's very time consuming. So I think deeply fragmented, uh, whether it's transit, you see it in, in water as well, by the way, um, but deeply fragmented small projects, markets are going to be very difficult to use for project financing. If you have uh, single vendors, manufacturers, for example, that are trying to do roll out something where it could be replicated in many mm-hmm. jurisdictions, then the small size might not matter because you can bundle that. Uh, so, and I actually, you know, I think the opportunity for project financing larger portfolios that consist of many, many smaller uh, projects or facilities or assets, I think that actually is, is doable. And it just takes the right team to, to, to be there to devote time, not just to the technology side and not just to the economics of it for financeability, but also the relationship building with transit agencies or uh, governments, uh, uh, manufacturers, other stakeholders.
0: Okay. Um, Very interesting. Okay. Well, I think we've gotten to our our 30 minutes here. So, um, Alan, uh, thanks again for uh, giving us your, your wide range of views. Always appreciate it. I just want to reiterate again that uh, Alan is moderating our first panel at the uh, New Project Media Development and Finance Forum on April 5th. Um, His panel is uh, coming from all over all angles here. And uh, Alan, I think has many weeks of preparation ahead here, but we have Marjorie Hahn, uh, Shells America's Onshore Renewable Power Development Head, uh, Apex Clean Energy's VP of Finance, Omar Carrar, uh, Blackstone Infrastructure Senior MD Matthew Runkle, uh, NCap Investments Energy Transition Managing Partner Jim Hughes, and uh, Bill Caesar, which is the president of Generate's Waste to Value platform. The amount of technologies you're going to have to uh, mediate is is wide ranging, my friend. But we do appreciate you taking the time. But um, makes the
1: energy transition fund is where actually, I think of it as sort of an inverse funnel. We're going from a few energy technologies to a yeah. lot of different possibilities. Yes. And I think it's gonna be a tick
0: the box all the above for for, for for people. Pretty much. Um, so for more information on the event, go to uh, bit.ly backslash npm events uh, 2022 2022. Anyway, Alan, thank you again for uh, agreeing on come on the pod with me today and uh we look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks thanks john Always a pleasure thank you